Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. No surprise, uh, we're going to talk today about Derek Chauvin and George Floyd and police accountability. Uh, And that accountability, of course, is a subject that we visit pretty frequently here on the show. But today we do it with a little more hope. Chauvin was convicted yesterday of two murder counts and a manslaughter charge for resting his knee, forcing his knee into George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes last spring. Carolyn Randall Williams, who's an award-winning poet and activist, is going to join later in the show uh, to talk about what this means in a cultural context. And we'll also be joined by Alex Vitale, who studies policing and social justice at Brooklyn College. But I want to start the show today with a familiar voice here in southeast Michigan. Kim Worthy is the Wayne County prosecutor and she joins us now to talk about yesterday's big news. Kim, welcome back to Detroit. Today. Good morning. Hey. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so I, I want to start just with your reaction to the verdict yesterday. I was worried going into uh, the deliberations that the mix of charges here, the fact that there were three different charges, mm-hmm. might might confound the jury, right? Might Might be difficult for 12 people to agree on which of those was the right charge. Turns out wasn't hard for them at all. In about 10 hours, they said, he's guilty of all three. What was what was your reaction? Well, I, I will admit to being a little concerned when I heard the judge reading the instructions because I thought that they were unnecessarily confusing. And, you know, of course, I'm an expert in the Michigan law, criminal law, but not Minnesota. Mm-hmm. But then as I heard him read the lesser offenses, I was a little less concerned. But I I have to tell you, Stephen, and I've been saying this from the very beginning, I knew there was going to be a positive verdict in this case. I I was very, very sure about it. And it was confirmed when the jury came back yesterday. And and as you know, there was a bit of time between the time it was announced and the time it came in. And Mm -hmm. and that's very normal because they have to get all their ducks in a row, so to speak. But I knew immediately, based on my experience, it it was too soon for a not guilty verdict. There was no way that they could have come to a not guilty verdict that fast. And it was also too soon for a compromise verdict. Mm -hmm. And when I say compromise verdict, I mean on a lesser offense. So I knew immediately it was going to be a guilty murder case. People thought I was crazy, but I was sure of it with every fiber of my being that it was going to be a a murder conviction from the very beginning, but more sure when the jury jury, uh, announced they had a verdict. Yeah. So so this idea of holding police officers accountable for the kind of behavior that uh, Derek Chauvin indulged when he killed George Floyd is a source of controversy in our in our nation. I mean, it does not happen as often as I think it should. Um, put it in some context here in Metro Detroit, where we have some of the same tensions that uh, mm-hmm. that you see in these other places, and there are people who think that our officers are not held to proper account. Right. And, you know, I think it all goes to who the public officials are. And people still get upset with me when we announce charges where we're not charging a police officer. And when we when we do not charge, we have looked at that case very carefully from all angles. And we do not charge when we can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. But that being said, my office has a very strong record of holding police accountable. And, you know, a few years ago, we added up the stats and we'll do that again soon. In fact, I had my, my chief present, present facts to me recently, and we charged over 70, 70 police officers for varying degrees of misconduct 
over the last few years. But even going further than that, back, and you know this very well, back in 93, I was part of a prosecution team that successfully prosecuted two white police officers of viciously mm-hmm. and murderously beating to death an unarmed um, black motorist named Miles Green after they stopped him on a bogus stop. And so that time I didn't realize it, how phenomenal that was, the verdict was, and because you know, in the 26, 27 ensuing years, you just don't hear about it much. You hear about officers being charged rarely, and even more rare than that, they're convicted, and even more rare than that, they're convicted as charged. And so the case we did in 1993, right here in Detroit, with Detroit jurors, 24 of them deciding these two police officers' fate, mm-hmm. they found him guilty of murder with no videotape, with no body cameras, and with no dashboard cameras. So it can be done. And I think as a result of that, I'm hoping that people respect this area. And, and believe me, police officers know that my office will charge them for misconduct when we can prove it guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. I wonder what you make of the other discussion that kind of is in the background here, which is the rethink of policing that is yes. is being pushed and and the idea that we can't really reform the police, that we've got to... Uh, remake the police, that that this is so ingrained in uh, the culture of policing and the history of policing, uh, this this hostility toward uh, people of color, that we have to completely sort of dismantle it and put it back together. What, what do you what do you think of that? I, I think you're right. But I think it's important to state that, you know, and you know this, too, there are good and bad people in every profession. And so you have many good professional police officers. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about reforming uh, policing. And I think that that has to be done, frankly. And I think there are some many ways it can be done. Number one, and this is in no necessary order, you've really got to take a good look at the use of force policies, obviously. There also has to be much more involvement with the community in policing. And, you know, I chair a committee, a, a statewide committee of prosecutors who we are talking about police reforms. And we had the NAACP, we had everybody in the system, the police union, we had victims of, of police brutality, we had Everybody that you can imagine, the governor's people, the lieutenant governor's people, the AG, all weighed in. Because you have to have complete and total reform. And just a few of the things, if I can get to to it very quickly, there needs to be a statewide or a national-wide database of of bad police officers Mm. when they commit offenses. There needs to be a statewide or national database, what we call Giglio, uh, Brady Giglio, that when police officers are not telling the truth on the stand and when they lie in the investigations, that needs to be on record. We need to restore residency because the studies have shown that if you have police officers that live in the community that they police and people know them, they see them, it's much more successful. And I understand that's hard in some smaller departments, let's say up north, but at the very least, we need to incentivize police for, for um, living in that community. And there's all other kinds of things that need to be done as well. We do need to look at qualified immunity. Now, that's a, a hot button topic. We need to look at it. And I don't know at this point what my committee is going to do with that. We need to look at training, implicit bias of things that are that make common sense that should be going on along. So we, there's a number of things that have to be done and a number of things that would be coming out of my committee that we would recommend. Mm. Uh, so um, I'm very deeply and heavily involved with it. I've been trying to do something like this for 27 years. But now at least if one good thing has come out of this trial, people are, are talking about it and doing something about it now. So I think it'll be a bit easier for those reforms to take place. Yeah. Because the bottom line is accountability. Yeah. Accountability is the bottom line. 
when when you um when you think about the kind of accountability that uh that police face or or is sort of enforced against them you know we also talk a lot about qualified immunity and the idea that police officers you know acting in in the line of duty are not generally held personally responsible for the things uh that they do is that another area that we need to 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 rethink that, yeah, that's an area that needs to be explored. There's no question about it. We need to talk about it and figure out what we're going to do about that. That is certainly on the list of things that need to be looked at. Okay. Uh, Kim Worthy, uh, prosecutor here in Wayne County, it is always really great to have you here on uh, Detroit Today. I know that uh, you have to run, but I really appreciate you stopping by. Oh, no problem. Anytime. Okay. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk with poet and activist Carolyn Randall-Williams about how she's processing the verdict and what it represents to her. We also want to get going on the phones. What do you think of the verdict in the Derek Chauvin uh, trial in Minneapolis? What do you think uh, about the idea of the uh, greater accountability for police officers that maybe is signaled by all of this? Uh, Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Let us know what you think about the trial and the verdict, what you think about policing. Uh, A lot of people talking about remaking the police, deconstructing police as we know it, and rebuilding a department that is more responsive to citizens. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll get you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Thanks very much for joining us. Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. That truth has existed since Chauvin spent more than nine minutes with his knee on Floyd's neck in Minneapolis last spring. And it would still be true even if a jury hadn't yesterday convicted Chauvin of two murder counts and a manslaughter charge. But the gap would have been wider between what we know and what we live in this country had that jury not convicted. And we all know how many times we've seen that gap present itself, glare at us and challenge us to the activism and speaking out that has defined the worldwide movement that Floyd's murder inspired. George Floyd was murdered. George Floyd was murdered by a police officer, a so-called peace officer. George Floyd was murdered by a police officer who smirked and snarled while he literally choked the life out of Floyd. 
I got to say, it does feel good to be able to say that and know that the law has acknowledged as much today. As much as it brings legal justice to this particular case, this verdict signals an opportunity for more officers to be held more accountable when they recklessly or cruelly take black lives here in America. This is an old song that plays over and over in our national ears. Police feel threatened or challenged by an African-American or other person of color, and they act with extreme prejudice, shooting or choking or beating that person to death. And the refrain goes, no charges. Or sometimes it's, well, we're going to have reduced charges. Or, and this is always an outrage, we're going to charge and try, and then a jury is going to acquit. It really matters that this case was different. It matters that Minnesota's highest-ranking law enforcement official, Attorney General Keith Ellison, made sure that Chauvin would not escape culpability. And it says to other officers just a little bit that maybe they too could be held responsible for taking lives inappropriately. Ellison, who's a native Detroiter, said as much yesterday, and his words will undoubtedly ring through police stations nationwide. And we hope they'll inspire the massive rethinking of policing in this country that's really long overdue. But as much as I'm hoping that's true, and as much as I need that to be true, for my 17-year-old son, for my 15-year-old daughter, for my friends and neighbors and fellow citizens, I know how far we still have to go on this issue. I don't just know that. I feel it. I feel it whenever my son drives his car to school or to work or to sports practice. I feel it when my daughter talks excitedly about her chance for mobile freedom, to be unfettered in the exploration of her city and her world with a driver's license and a car. I feel fear. Fear that a police officer is going to see them only for the color they are and that there's not enough restraint, internal or external, on police to hold them back from the unimaginable. How many parents have that same fear? How many citizens live each day with that same fear? The thing that keeps popping into my head about George Floyd today is the way the Minneapolis police first described his murder in their first reports of it. The department said a suspect had died in a, quote, medical incident while being arrested. A medical incident. From that initial lie, that humongous lie, to this moment, it has fallen too hard and too long on people of enormous will and determination 
to reach for the accountability and the justice that the police were instantly trying to avoid after one of their own killed a black man. It was instinct on their part to cover, to obfuscate, and to lie in order to protect their authority to essentially kill at will. Justice had to go way too far in this case to conquer that instinct. And this is too common a story in our nation. It is the very water in which we all swim as Americans. Justice today? Yes, we have it. But tomorrow? It is not ever assured. I want to continue our conversation today about Derek Chauvin and George Floyd and police and accountability. The story that is going to unfold for months and years to come, I think, about what we do to go in a really different direction in this country. And I want to welcome another voice to the conversation now that I think will help us put it in important cultural context. Carolyn Randall Williams is an award-winning poet and activist, and she's a writer-in-residence of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University. Carolyn, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. So, uh, Carolyn, I want to start with just your reaction to what we saw yesterday when that jury came back into the courtroom and the judge read the verdicts, three guilty verdicts, two for murder, one for manslaughter. How did that how did that hit you? (laughs) Well, uh, I have it on video because (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. It's. there's still just sort of incredulity and overwhelm at, at the fact of it is the short answer. But I was, I got the New York Times notification um, around three o'clock central time that uh, that the verdict would be coming down between 3.30 and 4. And I was in the middle of teaching what a three-hour seminar on Zoom with my students. Um, and I saw the notification and I stopped everything we were doing. And I said, y'all, in 15 minutes, this class is going to turn into an M- MSNBC watch party <laughs> because we need to watch this together. Because mm. I know I had, a, I had several students of color who I know didn't want to experience it alone. Um, I didn't want to experience it alone. I wanted to be with my students in such a historic moment. And so we all, I watched with uh, with uh, 14 Vanderbilt freshman first year writing seminar, um, the coverage up to the verdict and then the moment of the verdict. And it was really extraordinary to watch a bunch of young people who just voted in their first election um, see justice do what it's supposed to do in that moment. Because they all grew up with, you know, Trayvon Martin and uh, Mike Brown and Eric Garner and then to watch this happen, you know, at 18 um, and to watch them see that and then have that be a precedent for what they demand of the future um, as they vote and think, um, that was really moving. I mean, I think, and then obviously for me after 
you know, after a class ended and, you know, I'm, I think that there's this strange, there's this wild relief, but then there's also this like, you know, cause you're always on the back foot. You're always hustling to figure out how to get justice to do right. Cause it don't want to in this country. Um, and I think there's a part of me that was like, all right, so what are they going to say now? How does this hurt us? Because that's like, you can never have a good thing without a bad one as a black person in this country, you know? And you're thinking like, well, so now this gives them all the cover to say, well, see the justice system works. Mm. You know, when you get a bad cop, we get the bad cop, right? That was just one bad apple. Um, and I, I'm already bracing myself for that to be a new defense that, you know, that Derek Chauvin will be pointed to by the right as proof that when, that there's no need for reform because when something bad happens, uh, the guy does go to jail. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I, maybe that's cynical of me, but I, I don't, and if it is in America, prove me wrong. <laughs> prove me wrong. Do you know what I mean? Fix it, like, right? <laughs> I like, I don't, I want, I want it to, I want this place to work better still. I think that, you know, Darnella Frazier got us justice, not the justice system. Yeah. That the young lady who at seven, a child, a 17 year old child who filmed, you know, filmed under a threat from Derek Chauvin, no less, filmed what was happening and shared the truth. That young lady did truth telling that got America, that got George Floyd justice got the Floyd family justice, not the justice system. So we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah. So so listening to you talk about students and their perspective, given their age, you know, having grown up with incidents like Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner in their minds and then watching something like this, it, it really makes me think of – myself and mm. <clears throat> remembering when I was a college junior, I'm pretty sure, maybe a senior, and watching Rodney King um, mm. being beaten by the side of the road in L.A. by you know a, a gang of police officers and thinking to myself then about, you know, how how horrifying it was, but also identifying really strongly mm -hmm. with the idea that, uh, you know, this is this is something that goes on in, in America and, and black people experience um, disproportionate uh, uh, reactions from the police in many, many ways. It's, it's not always in violence. It's often, you know, when I was a teenager here in Detroit, it was that I was constantly stopped and my car was searched and lots of questions about where I got the car and things like mm. that. Um, but, you know, that is now 30, 30 some years ago uh, that Rodney King um, was beaten. Uh, it, it makes me just really anxious and sad um, that you're sitting in a classroom with young people who 30 years later have 
the same kind of perspective because they've seen it happen all across their lives. I mean, um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure that our fellow white Americans quite get what that feels like. I'm not sure they can quite understand that for us, this is all the time. It is constant. And there is not an African-American who's my age. There's not an African-American who's half my age who can say that this doesn't shape their sense of America. I think it's, I've been thinking a lot lately about Emmett Till. I'm trying to work on a piece. I'm working on a piece about that a little bit right now. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, there's not an American twice your age either. (laughs) Right. You know, I think that there's, it's, 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 it is built into our foundation. And I think if there was a white, if there were enough white Americans that understood or were able to effectively empathize even, um, this wouldn't be happening. Um, so I think that the difference is, you know, obviously the Rodney King people saw that there was, it was witnessed. Um, there's in fact a whole organization called witness that was founded as a reaction mm-hmm. to um, his, his, uh, uh, to his ordeal. And I, um, I think that the way that we witness now is different from the way that we even witnessed in the early nineties, let alone the way that we witnessed in the fifties or in the, you know, and earlier in this country's history. And I think that that, if something changes, it will be that, you know, a photograph you can look away from uh, a video that you have to record to watch you know, the news that comes on and off because of the, uh, because then there's commercials and things like this. Like now, like my kids, it's on their phone, it's in their pocket, it's on their laptop, it's on Instagram, it's on Twitter, it's on social media. The relentlessness of the experience of the information, that's got to begin to wash over some people in a way that like gets into their body and blood and like that permeates the skin. I think that that, but, and of course you'll never know, you know, experiencing prejudice the way that black people do in this country, experiencing systemic racism. Of course you can't experience that if you're not a black person, but what you can do is figure out how to like empathize and use these radical acts of imagination. I think that was one of the things that was so arresting about Dante Wright's murder Mm. was that his mother America watched a white woman (laughs) weeping over her black son. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that that was um, disorienting for people in a way that uh, shook some sleep, some dust off of, you know, dust off of the, the case for empathy in this, in this conversation um, for better or worse. And I think, I don't know. I, my thoughts are still forming about this, right? But I think that that's where I'm hoping that we're going to figure out how to have more empathy. And short mm-hmm. of that, I know that, you know, because of technology and the way that the media machine is evolving, people who've never seen this before and never had to see it are being forced to see all the time, uh, even if they can't imagine what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea of witness 
the power of witness and uh, the the way in which that changes over time is mm-hmm. I think a really important <clears throat> component of 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 this narrative. Uh, you know, Emmett Till's mother insisting that uh, that there be a glass top on his coffin so that mm-hmm. they would see what was mm-hmm. done to her son is not appreciably different from a teenager filming Derek Chauvin with his knee on, on George Floyd's neck. I mean, uh, it is it is fundamentally different in the technology sense, mm. but it is the same act of almost crying out to the rest of America to say, look what's happening to us. Look, look mm-hmm. what's being done and and to do something. Um, uh, you know, the, the frustration, of course, is, you know, Emmett Till was killed 70, 75 years ago. Is that right? Something like that. Uh, it, was, uh, it was ni- 1955, I yeah, believe. 1955. So, yeah. uh, you know, um, it's 2021. It's, it's, we're getting long in the tooth uh, with, <laughs> with this, this witnessing and the inaction, I guess, that we see um, from, from officials and from the rest of America to change it. I'm talking with Carolyn Randall Williams. She's an award-winning poet and activist. She's also a writer in residence of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University. We're talking about the Derek Chauvin verdicts from yesterday. Uh, three guilty verdicts: two for murder, one for manslaughter, from a Minneapolis jury uh, for killing George Floyd last Memorial Day in uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, it, it, they're verdicts that I think caught a lot of people by surprise. Uh, they are verdicts that send a very strong message to Derek Chauvin about what he did, but I think they also send a message to other police about accountability uh, and mm. the possibility for accountability uh, when they act recklessly uh, and take lives without without reason. Uh, we would love to hear from you at this hour as well, what you're thinking about the Chauvin verdicts, what you're thinking about policing, what you're thinking about the ongoing conversation that we're having in this country about policing and uh, the calls, the very powerful calls right now to deconstruct, defund the police uh, in, in a way that takes it down t- from its uh, very structure to nothing and maybe rebuilds it in a really, really different uh, image and sense. Uh, give us a call. Let us know how you're feeling about this, what you're thinking about this, and, and what you think is, uh, is up next in this very, very long-going conversation. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET uh, Facebook page, put comments there. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Mark in Detroit, let's start with you. What's on your mind, Mark? Uh, hi, good morning, Stephen. Um, well, I'm, uh, I guess I'm going to echo a lot of what I've been, you know, hearing from uh, yourself and your, your guests. Uh, and, um, I, I, I read uh, Marcus Harrison Green's uh, column in the Tale of Times this morning, and, and basically his question is, why are we celebrating this verdict, mm-hmm. and uh, he's not. Uh, he's he, he's basically his his thoughts are. You know, it's it's a time to exhale. It's a time 
for a bit of relief for the country as a whole, obviously not for the families that are involved. Um, but um, it's, you know, we're, it's a very small step, maybe a baby toe in the door of what, what could be open to everybody, no matter color of your skin, uh, down the road as far as true justice. I, I remember very well uh, the Malfrey trial, as uh, Prosecutor Worthy referred to earlier. Uh, in fact, my wife was almost seated on, on that jury after several days of selection. Hmm. Um, so we, it was something, obviously, that we were riveted uh, on. And I also remember the day that the verdict was going to be announced. It was a feeling yesterday brought me back to that to that trial because there was a sense of appre- a- apprehension all over the country. Yeah, uh, I guess it, for Malice Green, it was more of a local, uh, but, you know, the eyes of the world were watching yesterday. And I remember I was at a mechanic, uh, auto mechanic, uh, that morning that that verdict was going to be announced, and he had brought his handgun to work that day and put it in his toolbox for fear of what might happen. And um, you know, so there's there's things here that really resonated yeah. back to Malice Green. Yeah. Um, I, I, but I'm not convinced. I'm old enough, and maybe uh, maybe I've seen a lot of things. And obviously, I'm I'm a white male, so I don't I do not know what it's like to be stopped for driving while black. I have a lot of black and brown friends, but I'm not convinced that that this is going to serve as a precedent. And that's something that are, that's going to make officers think yeah. about the use of deadly force. I'm just not convinced, and maybe it's a little bit pessimistic on me. Yeah. I, I, just, I told my daughters who are in the early 30s, and I hope you will get to see in you know in your lifetime uh, an equal uh, blanketing of justice for for whomever, you know, yeah. whatever crime. Mark, Mark, I really appreciate the the call and uh, the comments, um, mm. you know, uh, that skepticism that, that we all have, I think is, is healthy. That's a, that's a good thing at this point. Right. Um, the idea that yes, it's a huge, it's a huge milestone that Derek Chauvin was convicted and convicted resoundingly of uh, of murdering George Floyd but that it's it, it doesn't fundamentally change the things that um, the things that we're dealing with in this in this country uh, I, I don't think we should feel badly about that feeling I think we need to harness that and and to say yeah there is a lot that needs to change and it's really up to all of us to make sure that that change that that change happens. Uh, Carolyn, do you agree with that? Yeah, I completely do. I think that, you know, the sort of ambivalence that you're sort of expressing makes a lot of sense. I think there's ways in which this feels isolated. Um the the victory because it does it represent uh, a shift in the in the laws in the system the justice system hasn't been reformed the police haven't been uh reformed examined uh you know defunded whatever it is that we need to do to fix this like the steps have not yet been taken i think that what yesterday's verdict was is a powerful hope potential tool to take 
you know, take to the ballot box, you know, to take to the halls of Congress, to the House, the Senate, to say, now is the time. This, I think this verdict might be a chance to push through some meaningful reform, you know, on the federal level. That's my hope anyway. Um, because, yeah, I think that we have had this victory, but I don't think that that makes us feel like there's any assurance in an ongoing way that police officers will all suddenly have taken note, like I'd better watch my actions because uh, there, because justice will now be uh, exacted upon me. Like, I don't think that that's the, the, the way the conversation has shifted. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Carolyn Randall Williams. We're also going to add another voice to the conversation, Alex Vitale who is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He's the author of The End of Policing. He's going to join us to talk about this idea of reforming or remaking or deconstructing the police. Uh, We'll also continue to hear from you, Julie and Brandon Township, Allison and Elena in Detroit. We'll get to your calls next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest is Carolyn Randall-Williams. She's an award-winning poet and activist, writer-in-residence of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University. Uh, and I also want to now welcome another voice to the conversation we're having. Alex Vitale is professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College, and he's the author of The End of Policing. Alex, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, everybody. Yeah. So, Alex, I'm going to start with you here. And uh, have you talked just a little about how you assess the power of this verdict to advance the conversation about police and criminal justice reform? Is this a marker? Uh, Is this a significant marker? Uh, Or is this maybe just a blip and uh, we may be making a little bit too much of it? Well, I think on the one hand, this verdict is the product of the movement, of the outrage we've seen on the streets. You know, when we see the police department from top to bottom turn out to support the prosecution, when we see the prosecutor's office mount a genuine prosecution, that happens when there's a legitimacy crisis for policing and for the criminal legal system. And they basically decided that they had to throw Chauvin under the bus instead of defending him with the blue wall of silence. But I don't think this means we're going to just automatically, magically see this transformation of policing. We've continued to see the police kill three people a day throughout the trial, some in Mm -hmm. really outrageous circumstances. And I think the narrative we're hearing from police unions and police leaders is, see, the system works. We had the bad apple, we got rid of him, and now we can go back to doing what we do. And how do we 
I guess then for me, the question is, how do you turn that in a different direction? Then, right. How do you make this into a significant marker? How do you build on what happened here to, to make sure that, as you point out, police are not killing three people a day on average? They're not taking uh, lives, you know, seemingly wantonly in some cases. Yeah, I don't really think we're going to do that through the criminal legal system. Uh, Miriam Cobb and a number of other folks have said, look, that system wasn't designed to produce real justice in these cases. Mm. We're going to have to win this in a different arena, basically in the political arena. We're going to have to transform the politics of a lot of cities that have turned every problem in the sun over to the police to manage and to quit accepting this idea that we can have a kinder, gentler, more professional war on drugs and that that's okay. Or that if we just give, you know, school police a little training, then that's okay. And instead, you know, we need to look at the core demands of the movement over the last year, which is we need to get the police out of our lives in as many ways we can and replace them with better alternatives. So, uh, as I said, you're the author of The End of Policing, which is, of course, a pretty provocative title. I want to give you a, a little time to talk about what you mean by that. And I think you're you're getting close to it in what you just said in terms of getting the police out of our lives in, in many ways and replacing them with uh, community-minded uh, institutions and organizations, but uh, but talk about what that means to you. Yeah, we're, we're stuck in this trap where over the last 40, 50 years, government has defunded social programs, the social safety net, schools, health services, and all the rest. And then as social problems like mass homelessness and mass untreated mental health and substance abuse problems and youth violence and failed schools emerge, those problems have been turned over to the police to manage, never to solve, right, just to manage those problems. And what people are demanding right now is that we actually get some solutions to these problems because the police don't have access to affordable housing. They don't have access to high quality mental health services. They don't have counselors for our young people, right? They have guns and ticket books and handcuffs and tear gas and all the rest. And people are saying, we want our problems solved by people who don't use violence as their primary tool. And so the book lays out how we could actually do that, what it would look like to transform school discipline without school police, what it would look like to get police out of the drug business and out of the mental health business, what we could do to address homelessness instead of just having police chase homeless people around the block. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Allison in Detroit. Allison, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking my call. Mm -hmm. I was recently in the um, police academy, and I dropped out for a lot of the, all of the reasons that we're all talking about right now. And I just want to insert what I think is something that's really important that I think needs to be part of the national discussion and solution forward is that it's all of this starts from day one 
in the training in the police academies across America that um, student police officers receive. And there's a lot of reform that needs to, to begin um, from the very start. Thanks for taking my call. So, so uh, Allison, before you, before you go, I, I want to get you to, to expand just a little on what you, what you said initially, which is that you dropped out sure. of the police academy because of some of these issues. Can you talk about what you saw and experienced that, that made you want to make that decision? Sure. I mean, there, uh, there are a lot of things. I, I can say one thing is the language. Like, you started the show with um, that very dehumanizing language mm-hmm. um, that police use um, mm-hmm. to sort of label different, quote-unquote, problems out in the community. And they're humans, and they're not, you know... Um, labels. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like there was a lot of daily, um, certainly sexism. And as a woman and an older woman, I felt that Um, there was a lot of homophobia that was out and open every day. Um, That seemed to be, you know, totally okay to target LGBTQ folks in our community as a as a point of joke. Um, there, there were a lot of things. Um, those were some of them. Yeah, no, those are, I mean, those are really eye opening examples. Uh, Allison, I'm sorry you had to experience that, but I'm really glad that, uh, that you called to, to share that experience, uh, uh with us. Um, uh, Carolyn and Alex, I want to get you to react to what, uh, to what, to what Allison's saying here. Uh, Carolyn, I'll start with you. Well, one, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm a little bit heartbroken hearing that account. Um, I also am thinking to myself, God, what we need is police like this, like Allison. <laughs> right. Um, <Wish> <laughs> that's like exactly. <laughs> I, I, I wish that she'd stayed, but I don't know that that could have just resulted in her being standing by and silenced while this went on in a way that you don't want to be complicit in at some point. Um, So I think, I think that she, her calling in this morning is an example of, you know, the, the big, one of the other big fears I have, which is, you know, you think, well, maybe we infiltrate, we get good people into the space and then the reform can begin from the inside as we also work from the outside, but I mean, clearly it's, clearly that is not uh, a functional of path. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it feels plain that we're sort of past that point. And then, you know, I love the ideas that uh, you guys were talking about just before she called in. It makes me so excited to think of living in a country where, you know, social services get the money that uh, the police no longer have to buy like army vehicles. <laughs> um, but any, anyway, but it does feel like a faraway dream. It feels like a Thomas More. That sounds like a utopia <laughs> right. more than America's future. Wow. So I'm just, I'm just breathing and hoping that we get there. Yeah. Uh, Alex, uh, uh, Allison's talking about not just training, but culture. And I think that's, a, a tougher part to reach here. I mean, you can you can change 
the protocol for training police, but the, the culture that exists inside the departments, inside the academies is a much more nebulous kind of concept, really. And I, I guess I don't know how you, how you alter that. I'm not sure you do. I, I'm really skeptical about this. I'll tell you a quick story that some, some black and Latino officers came to a talk I gave in Houston a while back. And they said, look, you know, we came from neighborhoods that were badly policed, where we were subjected to abuse. And, and we wanted to try to find a career for ourselves where we could help the community. And we thought, well, maybe if we join the police, we'll help change the culture of policing. And they're like, but we failed. We, we couldn't change it. They were hoping I could tell them how to change the culture of policing. And instead, I said, look, when you were making that decision about a career, if you'd had a choice between a police officer and a job with the same pay and benefits, coaching football, mentoring young people in a local community center, which job would you have taken? And they all laughed and they were like, oh, man, we would have loved to have worked in a community center helping young people. But there were no jobs like that. And I said, exactly. There are never jobs like that, but the police department is always hiring. Wow. Wow. Um, I mean, that, I, that just kind of stops me, stops me cold. Mm. Uh, the, the thought of police officers as football coaches or uh, community organizers or things like that, I mean, that really does get to, you know, the heart of of what I think we're talking about in this country, but but as you both point out, I'm not sure how seriously we're, we're talking about it. Okay, uh, Carolyn Randall-Williams and Alex Vitale, uh, it was really great to have both of you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Okay. That is going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. I'm going to talk with Wayne State President M. Roy Wilson about vaccination efforts at the university, and we're going to talk about environmental justice with University of Michigan environmental and sustainability professor Kyle White, who is part of the new White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer and Anna Marie Seisling. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.